Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? A comics and pop culture podcast coming to you from the not-so-solitary fortress that is WaitWhatPodcast.com. Today, Graham McMillan and I curl up in your ear to discuss Patience by Daniel Klaus, Department H by Matt Kent, Harley Quinn by Amanda Connor, Jimmy Palmiotti, and Chad Hardin, This One Summer by Jillian Tamaki and Mariko Tamaki, The Secret Wars-related miniseries now hitting Marvel Unlimited, Neil Gaiman, Internet Outrage, and more. Fast but efficient show notes are available at waitwhatpodcast.com. We welcome your comments and questions at waitwhatpodcast at gmail.com. And we invite you to look out for us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Patreon. As always, we hope you enjoy. And thank you for listening. Graham, hello. Let's try now. Okay. Let's see. You you had a bit of a you had a bit of a gap when it was like, let's try now. I'm like yeah, you had a bit of a gap as well. Is Skype just being weird today? Maybe Skype is being weird this morning. Oh no, let, let, let's let's give it a go, and if it turns out to be problematic, uh, you know, fuck it, I'll just edit it all together, you know? <laughs> That's the attitude to the old Dunkirk experience. Yeah, exactly. I'm just like, ah, uh, fuck it, you know? This is what I'm learning in my life. Oh, I'll just work harder. Okay, that's fine, you know? <laughs> you are, you're that little dog in the coffee shop. <laughs> Wait... I'm not even sure. I, what's the reference on that? What? This is fine, dog. The Casey Green uh, cartoon. I don't think I've heard. I can't tell. Weird? Are you? No, I know. It's. I had that moment of like. It's everywhere. It's the Casey Green cartoon where the dogs in the coffee shop and everything's on fire around. Oh yes, of course. Hey, this is fine. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. You're right. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm like, oh yeah. I was like. No way you're on the internet and you've not seen that. Well, it's true. The amount of time I've spent on the internet seems to be dwindling down to the size of a pea. But that is something that I have seen, and yes, God bless Tumblr. Okay, so I want to ask you about that. Mm-hmm. Are you much happier now that you're spending less time on the internet? That's that's a really good question because, again, it's that thing of, like, I'm doing this new job, so there's such a, like – I'm like, Graham, you don't understand. I, I totally agreed that I didn't have to be happy anymore as long as I just agreed to <laughs> – I don't understand what you mean. My my understanding I, I is – I have had a week where I have been incredibly um, thin-skinned or quick to anger mm-hmm. about uh, the comics internet. I... About, uh, specifically, comics social media. Uh, I, I have been really – I've I've been the, the the curmudgeon. I've just been throwing up my hands. Like, do you have to like read offense into every single thing in the fucking world? Yes, and the answer I, I, is I, yes. Yeah, but I don't know what set it off. Even mm-hmm. like, it's not like there's been a big thing this week where people have been like, "Have you seen?" <gasps> but I just feel that at this point, and it it, it honestly could just be me. Mm-hmm. I uh, uh, people are just so eager to dislike something that they will go looking for reasons to dislike it. Like, I saw people this week going, Vision's a great book but they they reference the Washington Redskins, so, you know as a woke reader, I can't support this book anymore, and now this guy is going on my shit list. Really? And it was like, wow. Yes! Right? Mm. Like, things like that. Mm-hmm. It's just... I honestly feel like you're actually stretching to look to be upset at that point. Yeah. And, you know, well, you know? I, I... Or is complaining yeah. about the Black Panther having, I think it's 12 variant covers. Mm. And how, you know, 
Ted, Ten Attic Oats was great, and they, they loved Between the World and Me, but his book's got 12 varying covers, so how can we support it? And it's like, it's fucking Marvel. Of course it's going to have 12 variant covers. I was about covers. to say, if you're having your trouble with variant to... covers, you should have stopped off, you should have hopped off the Marvel and DC train, you know, between two to 22 years ago, you know? Right. It, the idea oh. of someone is like, I was really looking forward to fucking tan assy coats writing Black Panther, but now I think it's terrible because it's going to have variant covers. Mm-hmm. Wow. It's just. It is wow, right? It's not just me. Like, no, 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 no. Like, yeah, I feel that people are now stretching to to be to find new things to be upset about. And I, you know, you're talking to the guy who ran Fanboy Rampage, who rejoiced in this stuff, right? Right. And now it's like I'm I'm honestly just at the I don't know. You have to at some point you have to just recognize. That people are going to do these things, mm-hmm. com- or companies, I should say, are going to do these things. And I'm not going to say whether it's good or bad. Mm-hmm. And I think you get to make your mind up on that. But don't act surprised when Marvel does what it does. Or don't be surprised when DC does what it does, or or any of these companies. And don't act as if it's some new outrage. Well, okay, <laughs> it's so funny because every time you're talking about this. I I really have to give uh, Frank Joe credit because actually now <laughs> whatever the word outrage, yeah, I just see that image. Sure, I and it, little uh, Spider Gwen faces. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's 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 all you know. He's he's somehow managed to make it his meme, like one like insipid sketchbook cover at a time, but <laughs> one unfunny joke at a time. Oh. And now he kind of does own that word, which is. I guess what he wanted to do, but it's like, congratulations, you have won the world's most pointless contest. Well, maybe. I don't know. I mean, you know, if if people have their way and they manage to actually figure out a way to, to – uh... Uh, what's what's the word? Uh, monetize uh, language, like they keep saying that they're going to do. He's he's going to be rolling in it, you know. If he just, you know, kind of that way that YouTube like pays people, you know, when someone goes and looks at watches, you know, a baby slipping on ice or whatever. It's it's going to be the future, man. You know, any word we type on there. Slipping on ice video? Oh, man. You're like, how did I miss that? I'm trying the baby slipping on ice meme. You can can tell I have not been on the internet in, like, for fucking ever. (laughs) Like, that's where I went. I'm like, a baby slipping on ice? Like, seriously, my attempt to remember what the internet was like. people are into, right? I just went back to America's Funniest Home Videos from, like, 19, you know, 92 or something like that. It's just... It's, it's embarrassing. Yeah, but that's classic. Yeah, if it's going to come back, I don't doubt. I, we're, we're all just waiting for the baby. Graham, do you have ice. a do you have a do you have a browser open right now? Go to YouTube and put "baby slipping on ice." <laughs> do it. You I don't want to do that because okay. you know it's going to fuck up our internet connection again. Okay, YouTube.com mm-hmm. baby on ice. And what you just want to me to tell you how how uh, many results many are there's got to be oh, how many results. Yeah. Uh, What's the number about one result? About 20,700 results. Yeah, see, there we go. The first one is cute baby slip on ice. <laughs> it's had 37,242 views. <laughs> okay, so that's that's not one of those 12 million... Just, okay, type in just Justin Bieber slipping on ice. I, I know I'm going to find this sooner or later. No, I'm kidding. Do not do that. 
I like how you think that there is a video of Justin Bieber slipping on ice and there's thing. There's not. Oh, I'm sorry. <sighs> what? Come on. Uh, the first result is Justin Bieber's I'll Show You from four months ago. Oh, which watch had... it. Is he, is he slipping on ice? Is it, is no, it him watching, yeah, walking across know? ice and not slipping? Guess, guess how many views this Justin Bieber video from four months ago has had. Uh, four million? 183 million. <laughs> 183 million, 50,294. Uh, Just think about that number for a second. You know, I'm almost willing to bet he slips on ice in that, though. I mean... <laughs> seriously, I'm going to go to it's Google... Miracle Man, Jeff. What's that? I tell you. Man. Oh, yeah, Neil Gaiman's Miracle Man's been pulled. You saw that. Oh, right? yeah. Stop talking about slipping on ice. I love your segues. I really do. Um, I don't even want to look at these images for Justin Bieber slipping on ice. That's all. Hey, don't, don't Google image search that. No, that is. Shit. It's, yeah, it's, it's amazing. I don't know. I, I just, that was clearly a mistake. So I'm sorry. Yeah, that was a bad idea. I can't, um, I can't unsee that collage. So yeah. So, uh, yeah. Gaiman's Miracle Man pulled. Um, you gotta, you gotta get me in there, Graham. I'm telling you, I've got. Uh, yeah, sure. Cause I'm the person who has pulled with Marvel. That, that, <laughs> that's what happens. <laughs> Marvel literally do not even respond to my, uh, emails anymore. <laughs> really? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> not even a response. Wow. Even even when you it's that official capacity type thing. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Even even when like I am asking for simple pieces of information. <laughs> Sorry. I, just just I, checking I, up. I, Can you tell me Fantastic Four was created by Stan Lee and blank? If you could get back to me, this is for a piece oh, right there. They, they wouldn't respond to that. I get responses genuinely when I am asking them such softball information. That they think is going to be favorable, <laughs> and that's it. Wow, that's it. Mm. That's it. well. Yeah. So yeah, you're maybe not the right person to to. to yeah, uh, but but you know, we have people who listen to this podcast who are are, are in with Marvel, who oh, even true. work for. Marvel. Oh, so yeah. everyone, everyone who that might refer to, uh, <laughs> Jeff Lester is ready. To step in for Neil Gaiman. Can I just say that I love... Because clearly what's happened is... Because I think Axel Alonso even says this in an interview. Mm-hmm. That um, pulled the the Miracle Man Silver Age series. Mm-hmm. Because they want to have a smooth crossover from the reprint of the new material. I love the idea that Gaiman has known this is coming for like three years. Mm-hmm. And still hasn't finished the... What would it be? Three scripts necessary? Okay. To- this series. To, to be to be fair to Gaiman, I don't doubt that he's finished one or three quarters really? of one. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I I doubt that he's finished one. I genuinely do. I I think I think that he probably has finished one. But to, to be fair, and I could be wrong. This kind of goes back to what we were saying beforehand: is the reprints of the material sell for crap? You know and. <laughs> do it's it's amazing so i mean the thing is is that marvel i think is aware that there's no point in launching new game and miracle man material if it's going to get if the bump is going to be from sixteen thousand to nineteen thousand copies or whatever you know i i just think they're like it's not worth it so i kind of get it 
I don't know how they figure they're going to what Change they're going to, yeah exactly <laughs> you know because because the comics retailers generally are um you know they 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 don't forget overnight but there could be I personally it would not surprise me if they're like okay we got to we're going to launch this we're we got to figure out a way to launch it larger and my guess is what they will do is they'll wait until they figure out a, a quote unquote organic way to launch Miracle Man into the Marvel Universe and then launch the new series from Gaiman so that people will sort of have more interest, be confused about whether these stories are set in the Marvel Universe or no. not. <laughs> no, I, 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 I entirely disagree with that. Okay. Well, by all I, means, I, Graham, tell I, me, tell I, me their game plan. <laughs> I wish I knew Marvel's game plan. I would be a rich man. Um, I don't think they're ever going to take him into the Marvel universe. I don't think it's ever going to happen. I, I thought that it was never going to happen, but honestly, when you have paid so much money and you've got Neil Gaiman on the hook for some scripts and you're looking at selling 19,000 copies of it as a comic, you know, they... Wait, when you've paid so much money, how much money have they paid? Do we really, like, do we have any idea? We we have no idea. We have no idea. But um, I think I think it's somewhat safe to say they saw this angle, they went for it. They, <laughs> it's, it's Marvel, you know what I mean? They're used to paying... Nothing. They're used to paying like $35 a page to get an idea, you know? So whatever they paid. But, but I, yeah. I, you know what I mean? They're I, like, hey, $10,000. We got Miracle Man. They're like, what? What were you thinking? It's like, yeah, honey, it's okay. It's okay. I, it's, we're totally going to make this money back several times over. Trust me. It's a great investment. $10,000. Um, wait, you think we're made of money? Well, technically, we're Marvel. We are made of money. That's not the point. <laughs> How did we get made of money? We ripped people off for, you know, cheap parlance for nothing. <laughs> for lint. So anyway, yeah, sorry. Where where were we? That that was a uh, I, I like that little insight into the Marvel offices courtesy of Jeff Lesser. <laughs> um I think that first of all, I think that if you actually want to make a big deal out of it, mm -hmm. you change the fucking format of the Miracle Man book. Mm. And bring in Deadpool? <laughs> yes. No, <laughs> what I actually meant, Jeff... Oh, sorry. Yes. Don't make it a $5 book of which 16 pages are the, the story. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's it's a $5 book where... I mean, genuinely, it's less than 22 pages, right? Or actual story pages? I Definitely and less then, than story pages, think yeah. Half of it is, is you know... Here's some behind-the-scenes artwork. Here's some old Mick Anglo stories that... I swear to God, you're not interested in. Yeah. I mean, it, it's the format of that series was astounding. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was, uh, to be complimentary, to, to be positive about it, uh, a very cynical attempt to fleece the market. Yeah. Uh, and to be uncynical about it, it was the stupidest move. <laughs> I mean, what the fuck were they thinking? Yeah. It's... Astounding. I think we I think we talked about this. I think the format yeah. was purely that idea of, you know, 
again, they were like, we're going to sell 16,000 copies of this. How can we maximize our return? Price it for five bucks and make it seem like a special edition? Sure. Yeah, but that was the case even from the first Moore issue. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, they didn't know back then it was going to sell so poorly. No, I think, well, I think they did. Is is the deal? I think they honestly That's did. True. They actually kind of killed their own brands by putting out all the Michelangelo stuff first. Exactly, exactly. They put out all. They dumped all that Michel. And again, that is that a smart move? That is a stupid move. Why did they do that? Because they paid ten thousand dollars when they're used to getting stuff for thirty five bucks a page. You know what I mean? It's to me, it's just there are like what you want to make the new game and stuff work in the market. You issue the fucking thing as a collection first. Yeah, that's what I think they're going to do. I think they're going to hold back. They're going to get the scripts. It's not the sort of thing that Marvel normally digs to do. But at this point, I would be like, yeah, sure. Like, go OGN only, you know? Um, yeah. I, I think Although, that's their best you know, chance. Who knows if they do that? Because the, the, you saw that um, the season one line is, is officially dead. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. entirely not coming back. I mean, we kind of knew this is not we put anything out in there in, like, three years. Mm-hmm. But they're selling all the remainder off as, as cheap stock. Right. So it's gone. Marvel, and they, I mean, what's even happened with their other OGN books? The Thanos books are still coming out. But I think that's it now, right? Yeah, I think so. And I, I think, though, interestingly enough, even though those do well, uh, I think that, I think that, that's you know they did it as much for this was the contract that they worked out with Starlin. I don't, I don't think they're crazy about it, even though it's. I mean, the fact that it makes money for them, it's like can't hurt. But but again, I wonder how much money it makes. Uh, I mean, really seriously, how much money is the Thanos imperative making? Is that the Marvel? first one or the second one? I have, I honestly have no idea. <laughs> You're uh, like I don't know. It's the. Thanos. I don't even know if there really is one called the Thanos Imperative. <laughs> the Thanos Alternative. I, th- I thought it was. I thought it was. I thought thought there was one, which is so sad because I, I actually there have. There really might book. be, but yeah. I, didn't I give you my copy? Yeah, I think you did. But like, that's just it. Again, Marvel actually did a PR push behind that. Mm-hmm. They sent copies out to press, yeah. which they never do. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, genuinely, that and the first Miracle Mine collection are the only books I've ever gotten from Marvel Press. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was wondering, do you think they're going to do that with Tanahasi Coates Black Panther? Because it seems to be a no-brainer that you actually make a mainstream push with that. Uh, we will see. My my gut instinct is going to be that they would think we push it out to all these reviewers. It's just going to be a thing of note. I it wouldn't surprise me if they push the sh- if they do that with the first trade. Yeah, no, that, that's what I mean. Oh, okay. I mean, sorry, sorry. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Although, again, with the Axel Alonso interviews, but he was like, Civil War Two, everyone in the room included Tanahasi Coates. And I honestly just had this moment of, oh, shit, you're not going to make Tanahasi Coates Black Panther series crossover into Civil War Two, are you? Oh, man. Because if they did, again, talk about no-brainer bad decisions. Yeah. No, I mean... I, I I I think that I think that Marvel's in the corner is in a corner. So I think I think they're making as many they're, they're making as many bad desperate decisions as possible. Like they really are they're at that they're at that period where they are running out of cash, you know, they need their fix and frankly <laughs> If you're a friend of Marvel, I would not invite them over to any parties because you, 
your your Apple products will be missing the next morning. Maybe your lamp will be missing. You'll have to go down to St. Mark's Place and try and buy okay, it all last, back. Last time we said this, mm-hmm. we got into trouble. Did we? Yeah. <laughs> My poor memory. I remember we, we, it was either a tweet or an email. We got someone basically being like, show your working that Marvel is in trouble because Marvel is dominating the marketplace. Oh, yeah. Yeah, fuck those people. It doesn't matter that Marvel's dominant. <laughs> no, I mean seriously, this is the thing. Like, I, I this is this is this is this is no, economics. This is fuck those, uh, fuck those people. No, seriously, because this is my thing. Is economics one hundred and one is if you spend more than you make, you are always backed into a corner. Right. And in in this case, Marvel, it's not so much that Marvel is, quote unquote, spending so much, you know, despite that I've you know made the jokes. It's the fact that they are expected to earn. If you're expected to earn and you're not living up to your earnings, things get desperate because otherwise people get fired. You know, the Marvel say what you will. Marvel Marvel's editorial has been entrenched. There are people that have been there now for a sub- su- significant chunk of time. Those are people that do not want to lose. And I can't blame them. There's people who work very hard. I'm sure they don't want to think about, like, you know, losing their jobs or, or having the people <laughs> underneath them lose jobs. Losing their jobs. What's that? Who wants to think about losing right. their jobs? Right. Well, I <laughs> – Like, that's, that's not unreasonable to say – these guys don't want to get fired. Right, exactly. Well, I'm not. I'm not saying. I'm not. Wait, I haven't gotten to the part of ergo they're monsters. That's a little okay. farther down the line, you know. Because well, it's, as long as as long as you're okay with people trying to work to keep their jobs. Yeah, I know it's it's a controversial <laughs> take, but I'm willing to embrace it, Graham, because that's that's just how daring <laughs> that's, that's I am. The, that's the kind of guy you are. I'm not gonna. I'm I'm not gonna flinch from it. I have to say, I'm pro jobs. Yeah, that's right. So anyway, I. You could run for president. I yeah. really could with that sort of like daring stand, you know. <laughs> you, you, I debate between that and Donald Trump would be great. I'm pro jobs. Jobs are great. Jobs are great, Donald. And then he wouldn't have anywhere to go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. I mean, that's the great thing about about Trump. And great is said in quotes is he'll still go somewhere. I mean. Exactly, but he'd go to somewhere wonderful. Like, you'd be like, Jobs are great. He'd be like, your beard is ugly. Yeah, totally. He'd be that like... That's sad. And yeah, then, completely. Like, okay, sure. It's, it's pretty amazing that you're pro-Jobs, considering you look like you hang out on a street corner selling pencils. Uh, that's uh, pencils. I mean, who even uses pencils anymore? That's just ridiculous. I mean, he's no, got no, amazing no, There's, too many, there's too many words there. Is there? Yeah. That's just ridiculous. Who who even uses pencils anymore? Ridiculous. And then he'd just be like, "Sads, just sads," and throw up his arms. <laughs> he doesn't use like he. If you listen to what he says, this has gone on just the greatest way one tangent ever. <laughs> but if you listen to what he says, he doesn't like bridge words. He's he is already saying the abridged Donald Trump. Oh, I see. Okay. He like he'll go noun adjective. And there's nothing in between. Oh, okay. Because the stuff I hear, which admittedly is not much, is always the stuff where he's like, you know, I know lots of words. I I, I pretty much know all the words. You know, did, stuff did you like see, that. Did you see that he was asked, uh, who are you listening to in foreign policy? And he said himself. <laughs> and, and then he said, and I quote, I'm very smart. I think great things. Exactly. That's so wonderful. I mean, it's terrible and appalling. And I am genuinely 
honestly scared. See, and this is it. This is. But it's also wonderful. Yeah. It's that terrible thing. We are like, I hate that I'm amused by this, but I am amused by this. Yeah. Oh my god, that Hitler guy and his mustache. It's right? com- comical. No, it totally exactly. is. Yeah. No, I get I, it. Honestly, at the point where I really genuinely got fearful, as opposed to there's no way this will happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, it was really late. It was the Chicago um, protests. As soon as that, uh, as soon as that happened, I was like, "Oh, we're all in deep shit." Yeah, yeah. We're we're actually like heading towards apocalypse. Yeah. Well, yeah, we'll see. But to, actually, to return to your point about yes, let's let's uh, well, <laughs> a, actually to to jump all the way back to what you were talking about uh, with with the internet outrage. Uh, I want to suggest, and this is, this is far from a provocative theory. It's about as exciting as pro jobs. The idea that people's search for greater and, you know, more and more trivial things to be outraged about, of course, suggests the idea that people are actually looking for their outrage fix rather than actually being upset about what they're – they think they're upset about what they're upset about, but they're actually – and I do think that there is a lot of uh, outrage in this country. I think there's just a, a genuine – profound sense of disempowerment that is in the world right now and consequently people are trying to stave off their feelings of powerlessness by by doing something that feels active and if that active thing is dropping the vision you know or you know chastising marvel for black panther's 12 covers you know i I, that's you know unsurprisingly that's what's going to happen i it you know it's the problem that my problem is is i feel like there's a very crucial link here that i cannot make which is in the toward the end of the 60s you know you had Various movements come together and sort of channel as a force against the the quote unquote establishment. Uh, so you know you you had people of color, you had the the women's movement, you had the anti-war movement, uh, you had actually a very strong sort of coalition. But the coalition itself was you know everyone was working toward their own ends, and and as long as that end was a common goal great as things sort of started as those as each of those forces gathered power they began to fracture essentially under the weight of more individuals with more goals coming in if you know what i'm saying so no no i, I do i totally follow so it, it wasn't even necessarily the sense that that you know, all of a sudden, the the people of color could no longer communicate with like the women's movement per se, although you know they certainly were able to accomplish more together than apart. It was as much the fact that suddenly within the feminist movement you had multiple schools or theories of feminism and they were clashing. You know, so I think one of the things that that is rough is. For me, I'm always I, – I look sometimes at stuff on Tumblr or Twitter or the internet and I feel like these are people who maybe 
And, and, and I don't know why, whether it's because enough people have joined the fray that it's just sort of become a scrum, you know, where you get situations where – because you see stuff that's that's happening. The, the amount at which people are w- willing to lecture one another on what are, you know, common grounds. I know that this has been the thing that's been driving you crazy about, say – you know, Hillary Clinton's supporters and, and Bernie's supporters and supposedly the fact that they, you know, cannot get along and, you know, are fraction, you know, threatening to tear apart their own party when really all they have to do is be, you know, uh, united against a, a common enemy and they'll win. Uh, but I do sometimes wonder, like a lot of that energy, it just so I don't I don't know. I sort of feel like, you know, somewhere in the the chapter of Angela Davis's women class and race, you know, the the that I don't remember, she talks quite specifically about what <laughs> what should have happened, like how you get how you get all these disparate forces to, you know, stay together because otherwise what you get is you get a bunch of you you basically get people who are um, uh, highly highly volatile and yet uh, in uh, are particularly susceptible to and God help me that this is a phrase I have to use in relation to Donald Trump a charismatic figure you know <laughs> uh. yes uh, or or a charismatic idea right because to to get away from from politics because people are already mad at us. But and to get back to comics, you have, you do have people who are standing up for for their idea of right, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and get upset about you know the vision is talking about the Redskins, right? Yeah. And you know that's that's laudable, mm-hmm. uh, but there's it, it's not like there's a figurehead egging them on for that. The the figurehead is the the concept, if you mm-hmm. will. Mm-hmm. So, so it, it's not just, uh, you know, there's a charismatic leader and he's he's making people act against better human nature. It, it's also that, as you're saying, the the idea of justice mm-hmm. is not uh, a fixed point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, as people crusade for justice in their own ways, because their definitions are going to change, yeah. they're going to fracture. Once you solve the bigger problems. Right, you, or you really or you do, you really do, or not even solve, but once yes. you address the bigger problems, yeah, 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 yeah. and st- get to the point where you start thinking about, well, what do we actually want as opposed to what do we have to fight against because it is so horrific. Exactly, um, you 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 do start to fracture. Yeah, so I think I think you see these things, and and it is the sort of as long as the structure is in place, and you think that you can't change that or you don't want to change it, then you know, you're, you're kind of, you're kind of in a, in a screwed place. Like you almost have no choice, but to like, if you're not going to tear down the building at a certain point, you're just going to turn on the other people in the building with you. If you, if you still want to keep that, that, that drive, you know? So, so yeah. uh, Gosh, somewhere in between there, it was like, Oh, so Marvel at the at the risk of returning to our, our original um, you know sets of, of outrages, I I firmly feel that that Civil War, just the fact that it's Civil War two, to me is like Marvel 
it needs needs its fix. It has done diminishing returns for I think even Secret Wars as well as parts of it sold. The rest of it did not take off. The all new, all different stuff did not take off. They and again they've got they've got a fix. They've got they've got to they've got to hit their target. It's so funny I, that I'm willing so- to to talk about them like. <laughs> Talk talk about Marvel like drug addicts instead of you know prostitutes, which is really just <laughs> such a shame. Well, <laughs> okay, there's there's a bunch of stuff I want to pick out from that. Let's go for one of them first. I when Secret Wars was coming out, I said something along the lines of like, "I'll read it in Marvel Unlimited." And now that the minis are showing up in Marvel Unlimited, I find how amazingly disinterested I am because I can't even be bothered reading them in Marvel Unlimited. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I don't know if you've experienced this as well. But I've sampled, like, I think I've read at least the first issue of all of them. Mm. But the number of ones where I've thought, oh, I'll come back to that, is shockingly few. Right. Right. And I don't know if it's that I am, I don't have that Marvel fan gene that makes me think, oh my god, they're doing Age of Apocalypse? Oh shit, they're doing Civil War again? Do you know what I mean? Like, because here's the thing. When Convergence came out, Convergence is the same fucking idea. Right. And I was more excited about that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because that is what I have the fan gene for. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, I am excited is far too strong a word. I am more interested in reading, you know, pre-Crisis Flash mm-hmm. than I am in reading Age of Apocalypse X-Men. That's your and, jam. And, but yeah. Okay, but you are a Marvel fan. That's what I was going to ask. Are you having the same thing? Like, are you reading any of the Secret War series in, in Unlimited? And if so, are you enjoying them? Well, okay. Let, I, let me very quickly divide this out into into two things very, very, very rapidly. One thing is because the short answer is, right, you and I, DC, Marvel, let's acknowledge that I'm, I'm more of a Marvel fanboy. But before we go there, I have to say because I've spent a certain time, amount of time reading Marvel Unlimited – uh, you know, you and I, I usually download the FF issues, uh, f- download. I store them for offline reading. Th- this is my problem with Marvel Unlimited. On the one hand, I think it's an amazing service. I have a relatively spiffy, up-to-date iPad with lots of memory. And Marvel Unlimited is still just clunky as shit. Whatever they're, they're doing with their DRM... Or whatever, like the idea of being able to sit down and chain read comics never seems to <laughs> fully work. You Do know you what I mean? Issues and things go wrong. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, that's, like, that's, as long as I honestly thought that was because I had a Kindle and I would loaded it. No, but, and I thought I thought for I thought for a long time you did too, and then I was just kind of like, oh no, wait, I haven't really tr-. like I was just throwing out all of the times that it happened to me as just a fluke until I realized it's very consistent. Like I don't even blink. What I do now is I. I was so unwilling to look at the fact that the system is flawed because because of what I like about it that that I was like basically I take a dozen comics that I like and I save them for offline use and then I read them and then and then I like have to remove them and then I start in on the next dozen and I act like that's entirely normal and frankly at the late whatever they did you know with the at least as of a week ago, all I 
download a dozen for offline reading and they won't really download. They'll say like downloading and then they don't. And then when you click on them to read them, they will then download in real time. But I'm like, these are supposed to be stored for offline use. What the, what the fuck? At least they actually all download and I can read them. But whenever I do try to chain read more than like two or three. So all of which is to say that Marvel Unlimited is a, is a service that I swear to God I use every week. But it always ends up being a situation. It's never the situation that I want, which is kid in a candy store. Here's like, a, you know, like a, it's an all Marvel comic book store. Just jump in and start reading whatever you want. If it was completely seamless, I would have uh, I would. Who knows what I would be saying to you right now? Because it is not seamless, I'm, I have to make choices. You know what I mean? And those choices inevitably are, you know, I've, like, downloaded the FF issues. And then when those are done, I've got a couple of issues that I keep meaning to start that, you know, I do or don't. And then they'll drop something on the service. Like, I just spent the last week reading all the Steve Gerber uh, Daredevil books that got dumped on there like a few weeks ago. And when I say all, I don't mean it's not Gerber's entire run on Daredevil, not at all. But it does manage to have, a, you know, the, maybe 10 issues, uh, maybe a little less, uh, that include the crossover with the Thanos stuff that I loved when I read it in Avengers vs. Thanos. And the the whole mandrill story which i'd only had read the last part of so getting to read the rest of it was an amazing experience and i'll probably talk about that later so all of this is to say that if marvel unlimited that 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 basically if it worked properly if it worked properly chances are good i would be on it but the other thing to really keep in mind about as far as i can tell about the marvel uh, all of the Secret War tie-ins is, and this seems like a very sensible maneuver, they are things that are all cast from, say, the early 90s to maybe the mid-2000s with the occasional, you know, a recent event that was popular enough that they do a follow-up, right? So Yeah, the, the earliest things are, they put the Carvac saga in there. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and there's there's another one that's, that's surprisingly early. But yeah, everything else is pretty much, you know, if it happened in the last 20 years, it's right. here. Exactly. So part of me is kind of, I don't really care. I don't care about, I never read the original Age of Apocalypse, so I have no interest in reading any of this spinoff stuff from it. I quit reading Civil War, like, well, I quit buying Civil War, like four issues in or three issues in. And, I, which is ironically the one, one of the ones I like. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's in part because Charles Sewell is just a better writer than Mark Miller, right? Uh, but also, it's enough of a what if that there's interest in it. the The gimmick is what if the Civil War never finished and America was literally split in half? Um, and I, I see. I kind of want to spoil it for you, so you're not reading it. Yeah. But I'm okay. I will spoiler for people for a miniseries that stopped. Like six or so months ago. Mm-hmm. I think I'm okay. I think so. Um, the gimmick is this. The reason it didn't stop, it's revealed in the third issue, is because, as people who are reading Marvel at the time remember, there were lots of scrolls running around in the preparation of Secret Invasion. Mm-hmm. And so the scrolls have been fermenting and keeping everything going. And, and 
and are behind trying to keep all the heroes uh, separated to gain power. Quite why in the... Because it's supposed to take place at least 10 years after the story. Quite why the Skrulls have not, at this point, invaded and taken over. Not really addressed. But, but you know, that that's fine. Right. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting take on the idea that is not really repeating the book, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. As opposed to something like the Extinction Agenda series, which feels very much like, how can we bring that back to life? Or again, Age of Apocalypse, how can we bring that particular book back to life? The ones that I found interesting are things like Ease for Extinction, which again, feels like someone trying to take the ideas and the iconography and doing something different than the ones that are just... Let's like I read this as a kid. Awesome, right? Well, okay. So the things that I did read when Secret when Secret Wars was coming out, the only quote unquote tie in series I read were Ghost Riders, which was pretty terrible. Uh, but I, I mean, <laughs> you're, you're a mark for Ghost Rider, though, Jeff. I'm a mark for Ghost Rider, and I'm a mark for Felipe Smith, uh, or Philip Smith, Felipe Smith, Felipe Smith, who did Pipu Chu, who is. You may recall, I adored, uh, you know, that when he jumped in and was doing Ghost Rider for Marvel, I'm like, okay, I'm down with Ghost Rider. I'm, I'm down with Smith. And seeing Smith take a character, take a, have an all-new take on the Ghost Rider character, you know, basically, you know, his attempt to rethink that concept in a way that's um, – I don't want to say because Smith had, you know, trained, had, had spent time over in Japan actually working with manga editors. It wasn't like he was like, okay, how can I do a manga version of Ghost Rider? But it was very much an idea. But it kind of, of is. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> no, a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So so there's a, a variety of things that he was trying to work on. To me, the idea that he barely got into establishing a character before th- throwing him into an alternate dimension concept, I thought was kind of weird and wacky because part of me is like because alternate dimensions are so frequently kind of like you have to they take the emotional investment that you have with a character and they play with it which is god there's so many times where i'm like ah if only i could bookmark this and come back to this later because of some of the other stuff i'm going to talk about but uh, so you've got when you've got a character that you barely know that is really paper thin and really you're just supposed to have uh you know, develop feelings for this character over like 60 or so issues, but all you got is 12 and suddenly they're in an alternate dimension. To me, it was kind of hilarious because I'm like, it's weightless. You know, the flip side of that E for extinction, which I ended up enjoying tremendously and was kind of continually kind of holy shit by it was how much it felt like, um, you know, Chris Chris Burnham and uh, Dennis Hopeless and – God, I can't remember the – was it Villa, Villa Lobos who's doing the art on that? Yeah, Ooh. Ramon Villa Lobos. And it's uh, it's Dennis Culver who's the co-writer. Sorry, Culver, not Hopeless. <laughs> and there there are rumors, of course, that, that Burnham and Morrison being tight, that Morrison was either ghostwriting or at least uh, – Burnham had a lot of access to him, you know, needless to say. But what was great was how much this series felt like and, – and maybe the rest of these books are the same. But but at least when I was reading E for Extinction, I felt like it had a very it, – it was 
revisiting and also very explicitly critiquing some of the ideas, thematic ideas inherent in uh, Morrison's run uh, in, in a way that I really enjoyed and appreciated. Like I, I read it and I was like, oh, this is that, you know, it wasn't just, oh, this is making me nostalgic for the old material. It's kind of like, this is sort of subverting that material and sort of challenging me about it while also making me feel nostalgic for it, which if you think about it, it's the perfect tribute to a Grant Morrison comic. You yeah. Know? Yeah. So the, the other titles I would recommend, mm-hmm. uh, I think that Captain Britain and the Mighty Defenders is great. It's, it's a two issue. It's, I mean, it's a, a relatively light story, but I, it's it feels like a submission of what Al Ewing was doing in Mighty Def- Mighty Avengers, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in that, in a weird way, I've always felt that his Mighty Avengers run was uh, was the Avengers book about human decency, mm-hmm. I guess. <laughs> you know, instead of big events, it was the one that was like, "Hey, people can be all right." And sometimes we can do the right thing just because it's the right thing. And that's important. Right. And so to have uh, Mighty Defenders at one point explicitly become a critique of um, British foreign policy. Hmm. It's it's like literally it, it lifts from, I think it's a David Cameron speech. Wow. Like it lifts ex- like directly. Mm-hmm. From the cover speech, but puts the words in the, the mouth of Doctor Doom. <laughs> you know, and so it's like, huh? I see what you're doing there. That's really good. Uh, my favorite of all of the tie-ins was uh, Ewing's Loki wrap mm. up, uh, but that's not so much because of the Secret Wars element, and much more because it wraps up the Loki series amazingly well, mm-hmm. uh, and has a real emotional punch to it. Mm-hmm. I, I think I've talked on here before about how much I really like the Loki series. Yes, but that yeah, that the end of it really, really works and really sort of. If there's such a thing as like a good gut punch, mm-hmm. <laughs> like when you read something and you have a very strong emotional reaction to it. Yes. Uh, yeah, th- those issues very very strongly. But yeah, I like Civil War. And that might be it, the ones I actually really... Uh, e for Extinction. And, and that might be it is for the ones that I've really enjoyed in Marvel Unlimited. I've just found myself really surprisingly withdrawn from it. Mm-hmm. I think... Oh, <laughs> bless me, sorry. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Normally you're I, so fast I, with the I mute button. The mute that I didn't. Wow, I'm, I'm tempted to keep that on there just as like a rare example. Like, exactly. like <laughs> listeners, this never happens. Exactly. I actually did not reach the mute button in time. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I just think, I think Marvel was like, hey, we'll go crazy. And it was, it was a little bit of like DC's running filler. We'll outsell their filler with our filler. And also when we come back to all new, all different Marvel. And, and honestly, this is one of those things that, that I think is interesting about Alonzo's Marvel is you know, as much as I give them shit, I do feel like in many ways they are interested in supporting interesting work. They're they they're they're doing it under the rubric of 
you know, as long as as long as they move enough product, they can put what they want in that product. And so I think they were kind of like, yeah, go crazy, see what happens. Like, you know, I think Marvel has fallen under the the it it was it was so true for them for so long, but the whole idea of like we put blank on the cover and it's going to sell you know, 30,000 copies, no matter what you do. Like if we put, if we put civil war on there, if we put age of apocalypse on there, it doesn't matter what you, what you're going to, if you want to do, like do something interesting, do what you want to do. It's like, well, I kind of want to crank it out because I've got seven other scripts because you people are paying me so little money that I basically have to write like nine days a week in order just to make rent. Okay. Do that too. Yeah. Okay. Good. Great. (laughs) Hacking it out. I like it. Like it a lot. I don't know if we'll be giving you more work, but hey, you know, what the hey? Frank Thierry can't live forever, you know. So uh, there's, oh, man. I know, so mean. It's just, just <laughs> that, such a dick that move. Feels a little bit, little bit beyond the pale. It does, doesn't it? It really was. I think because it was just out of nowhere. It's like we hadn't even mentioned him. If I brought a new game, and there would have been something sort of aesthetically pleasing, although not quite, the joke would have worked. But uh, yeah, no, I I apologize, Frank Thierry, who I imagine sitting somewhere single tier. So, uh, Jeff, I, Frank Thierry's had a rough month, Jeff. He's lost his Marvel book and his DC book. They've both been cancelled. Jesus, what was his DC book? Catwoman. Oh, he was on Catwoman? What, they put Frank Thierry on Catwoman? Jesus Christ. Yes! They put Frank Thierry on Catwoman, replacing Genevieve Valentine, who was doing interesting shit on Catwoman, and then they paired him with Inaki Miranda. Uh-huh. Wow. So they were like, okay... It's an artist you love and who will do great work with a writer who's a 100% unsuitable for the book. See, and that's... I Good mean, luck, fanboys. Right, exactly. Part of me is like, ah, Frank Thierry, you know what I mean? I, he probably was a little more upset about Black Knight, but I, I'm sorry. I just don't... There's probably some point where someone's going to be like, curse you, Jeff, you know, you keep besmirching Frank Thierry's name, and he did blank, blankety blank, the most amazing story, you know, that... Like even even a guy like Paul Jenkins, who I don't especially like, people will be like, "Yeah, but there was that one Spider-Man story," and I'm like, "Yeah, I got to admit, oh, yeah, that people was, really that was liked Spider-Man. the Spider-Man stuff." Yeah, yeah you know, some some of the I mean, Spider-Man I'm stuff. Sure, I'm sure Thierry's done something that people like. Uh, Thierry did the uh, Iron Man's uh, armor becomes sentient and falls in love with Iron Man. Sorry. Whoa! No, that that was Joe Casada. No, 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 that was plotted by Joe Quesada and scripted, and I believe the last few issues written entirely oh, by Thierry. Wow. Okay, well, there we go. Now, see, and that that's, I remember hey, reading that. And be like, he did he did Wolverine for a million issues. He did that whole thing he where... He did Weapon X? Yeah, he did Weapon X. I just, I mean, you know, I, he, he did stuff for a long time, but honestly, I'm like, the thing that Frank Thierry did that everyone seems to love is, you know, he stood up and said, don't worry, guys, this next round's on me, you know, when he and Joe Casada and everyone else were drinking. <laughs> and he's like, oh, he's a stand-up guy. He can he can light his own okay. farts with okay. a match, you know. But I, 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 want to, I want to take a side note off of this then. Okay. Because one of the genuine surprises for me in comics in the last couple of months mm-hmm. is realizing that I actually like and appreciate appreciate uh jimmy palmiotti and amanda connor's harley quinn oh really wow and i feel the description of thierry's just there it's pretty much a joke we would have made about palmiotti mm-hmm. um and i'm super 
I'm I'm genuinely a fan of Harley Quinn, and I I have no idea how that happened other than DC kept sending it to me in comp issues, right? And eventually I sat down and read them. But it's it's a super fun, self aware book. The last issue had Harley Quinn stand up to the Joker and do all the things that the fans have been asking for. That's actually that's what I like about it. I like that it is doing fan service in a way that feels relatively organic, but more importantly, feels fun. So you have Harlequin standing up to the Joker and basically calling him out for the abusive relationship and, and quote-unquote, getting over him. And then the next issue, which comes out this week, which for some reason I got my comms super early, um, she changes her look so she looks like Margot Robbie. And it's on the guys of like, I've gotten over the Joker, I want a new look. And she gets like the, the Marco Robbie look with the hair and everything that looks nothing like the comic character. Wow. And in a great wink, she then looks at the reader and she's like, I love this, it looks so cinematic. Wink. That is yes! so funny. I love that! <laughs> I, I, play, I was like, you are, you have the balls to do that. I love it. That is so funny. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, what time? Yeah, I, I it doesn't take much to please me, but I, 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 it's a fun book. Uh, and in a week where I've also read Legends of Tomorrow, uh, you know, DC's dumping ground for miniseries that they then obviously had second thoughts about. Right. Uh, but also caught up on Len Wein's Swamp Thing, hmm. uh, Amy Chu's Poison Ivy series, and there was another one. There was another uh, DC thing I caught up with. Mm-hmm. Um, and you realize how... Let's be polite. Tonally consistent DC books are. Harlequin genuinely does stand out in how fun it is. It feels like a Marvel book because it has that level of self-awareness, smarts, but also just not giving a shit to toe the editorial line. You know, and and I all and the DC books that I enjoy the most right now are things like. Omega Man, mm-hmm. or uh, uh, Martian Manhunter, mm-hmm. which again are part of DCU, where their whole thing was, "Hey, not disabled kids," uh, and then died horrifically. Yes, in the marketplace and get killed. So you know, you now have rumors, which I really pray to God aren't true, but I are one hundred percent ready to believe are that Jan Dur- Dan Jerkins is going to be writing Superman again, which. Seems like the most astonishingly retrograde thing to do. Um, but all of DC Rebirth seems very conservative. And so Harley really feels like a book that is able to have its cake and eat it too. And if that ends up being the model for DC Rebirth, then they'll be in good shape. Don't you think that kind of DCU, like... Harley, I mean, I know we were all looking at them as the the bat girlization of you yeah. Know. How much of it was the Harley Quinnization? Is that yeah, mm-hmm. that's a really good question, and the answer is well, I don't know. Right. Um, I think probably the confluence of both books mm-hmm. is is what really brought it brought us out. Right. 
because Harley's been around for a while. I feel longer longer than Batgirl. I could oh, definitely. Wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I well, and this. But is, also, Harley Quinn is a sales success. Is well, the other thing. yes, and I think that that's kind of what I think. And I could be wrong, but I sort of wonder if Harley Quinn was this big success. Uh, and a sales success really caught DC by surprise. And this is usually the case with a lot of um, – you need a second thing to seem like a trend. Otherwise, it just seems like a fluke, right? Yeah. So, you know, when the Batgirlization turned around, things for Batgirl, like dramatically, DC was kind of like, oh, wait, okay, this is – you know, because they both fall under the rubric of the Bat Office – you know, they both sort of came from underneath that umbrella and they were kind of like, oh, all right, what do, what do we do? What, what do we need to do? And we need more books that sell like this. And more importantly, we need more books that can change our perception in the marketplace. Like we need that like burning. How do we how do we make that happen? And, uh, you know, if the DCU, I mean, there's just so many things. I personally feel that it, it is going to be, looking back, it's going to be characterized as, you know, bad timing. And, you know, I don't want to say too little too late because God help me if they launched with like 18 titles, you know. But the, the whole idea of doing a mini reboot, I think people were precisely kind of, well, the retailers were not down with it, but I also think the readers were kind of like they just weren't they just weren't really willing to commit if they had rolled it out a little differently. But again, you still need you still need the faith of the retailers. The retailers yeah, were just the, the retailers on Slayer that I think will happen to DC. Yeah, I think so too. I think I think they burned the retailers too many times and the retailers are like, "You know what? I'm not going to hand sell your fucking books." I'm yeah, not. I, yeah. Why? Why would I do this? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You know. So. But is it, why? Okay. Why are we talking about Thierry before he took us in that that teaser? Why? Why were we? Yeah. Oh, you know why? Because because I did actually read something uh, that I enjoyed tremendously that I know that you've read. Um, this one summer by uh, Jillian Tamaki oh. and Mariko Tamaki. I, yeah, yes. You'd said good things about it. Everyone had said good things about it. And I was at the library. It was right there. And I'm like, ah, I should grab this and flip through it. I'm like, man, this art is nice. And oh, the art's beautiful, isn't well, it? Oh, my God. The art is fucking amazing. Like, okay, so so those people, you probably remember Graham talking about it. But it's very much – this uh, this teenage girl and her parents, uh, they've been going to Owago Beach every year uh, for a summer getaway since she was a little girl. And uh, she's got a friend there, Wendy, who is also there every summer. And it, so they're basically – they're practically like sisters. But this is, this is the quote-unquote summer where everything has changed. And it, it – Rose goes out. She is older. She's sort of entering – teenagerhood and more importantly there's these various tensions happening between her parents that make her more aware of her environment and so the the as the book develops and i think it really is well written it's just great in terms of its uh you know i think everyone feels like the coming of age story is something that is not uh, particularly new, uh, of course, but, um, and, 
But there are ways in which, sort of like when you read some YA books, is like it can be very comforting to read as an adult. It's and in some ways, the I think one of the things that sort of sets this up so perfectly is because the summer getaway is itself supposed to be something that is comforting, but also can make you realize truths about things. You know, it's yeah. it's yeah. perfectly set for a coming of age thing, but. So it's it's well written. Everything unfolds very naturally. One of the things that's really amazing and not surprising is, I guess, because the Tamakis are sisters, uh, it feels like the work of a cartoonist rather than the traditional writer-artist dynamic that you've got paired in there. Because there are sequences that just seem to exist for no other reason than the beauty of the drawing chops. Like there's that double page spread where there's like hummingbirds going at a, a feeder per se. Mm. There's For... the cycling bit as well. The, the cycling. Mm -hmm. I, I remember really clearly there's, there's like a, a two a double page or maybe four page thing of, of a kid in a bike. Yes. Silent. And it's just, uh, just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, for me though, the, the thing that is amazing is uh, the center of the book is Rose, but, uh, her friend Wendy, who is probably the same age, maybe a little younger, but it's, but just a bit, but it's that classic case where thanks to the miracle of, of puberty, um, Wendy still looks like a little kid, uh, even though she's, you know, mentally and emotionally the same age as Rose, you know, just off by a little bit, but she is, it's it, it for anyone who just really enjoys substantial cartooning, for lack of a better term, she is such a fully realized character in the way that she is drawn, in the way that she acts, just the way that she looks. Because, of course, being more of a kid, she's drawn just a little bit cartoonier and it is it's it's brilliant. I mean, it's kind of a weird like. In some ways, because there is absolutely nothing really in content that would make you think this, but it made me think of Jeff Smith's Bone in some ways, just because Bone is one of those books where I remember just like whenever you weren't necessarily tuned in on the story, you could just enjoy the delight with which Smith drew, like drew, designed and put the, his characters in the world. You know, yeah. You, there were moments where you're just like, "Oh, this guy's great." Yeah, exactly, exactly. And with Mariko Tamaka's work, there's just parts where I'm like, "It's it's her own style, but it falls in that tradition of, you know, stuff that I love from Jaime Hernandez, stuff I love from Jeff Smith. Just just com not just the complete confidence and movement, but just the ability to so fully." Uh, realize a character on the page. It's just that was amazing. Um, and uh, and you know Frank Terry had no part in it whatsoever, as far as I know. So I think that's <laughs> wait, wait, that's how we ended up talking about Frank Terry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just like, I was uh, fuck that. So uh, the two other things, uh, if you don't mind, Graham, that I'm going to accelerate through is also when we were talking about the the concept of the alternate universe story where you have to be uh, invested in the characters in order to um in, in order to really care yeah i literally maybe half an hour before uh we talked 
started and finished uh, Patience by Daniel Klaus, um, which – have you read it yet? I have not. And to be honest, I'm probably not going to. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm not a Klaus fan. Yeah. As, as I sort of figured, in a way, I would love for you to read Patience because – uh, I think that if there was ever a Dan Klaus book that you would like, it would be it would be this book, and that's why I'd really like you to see it because Patience, for those who do or do not know, it's the new uh, original graphic graphic novel from Fanographics, uh, twenty nine ninety nine. Uh, I. Bought it, of course, started reading it, and for maybe the first 12 pages or so was like, oh, this is bad. This is baddie McBad. You know, like (laughs) Dan Klaus is trying to tell a story about two characters in a relationship that care about each other, and I'm like, that is so... Well, I should say it, it's so far away from what he's been doing for so long, at least in comics work, that I'm like, this is not coming together. Like, it, it really was. There were parts that were just, you know, because I remember thinking that Wilson, it it had its moments that worked for me and parts that I appreciated. But there were huge parts where I was like, I couldn't really buy into what Klaus was doing in Wilson, which in a way was an extension of stuff that he'd done in like Ice Haven or the Death Ray, where he tried, particularly Ice Haven is the one that, that makes me think of this, but um, Klaus was trying to figure out his obsession with making a page a complete unit the way that comics can, especially at that point, I think a, a very strong influence on, on newspaper comics and Sunday newspaper comics was made. He was enjoying the way to sculpt a page as a page, as an art, as a, as a piece in itself, but how you connect that to a larger narrative, you know, seemed to be the struggle that was happening in Wilson uh, and, and, uh, you know, runs throughout the other work and in patience where he's clearly trying to, move he wants to tell a longer story those first few pages are so like awkward and uncomfortable and i hate to be one of those dudes um because god bless them a lot of my friends i have to say are these dudes who are like oh i love so-and-so's work when they were younger but now that they're older it just looks flat and sloppy and like they don't give a crap you know Klaus, interestingly enough, his work, he's always had like a weird, almost diopter approach to his work. He could do stuff that would be drawn in like sort of really expressive detail, but a lot of times he liked dialing it back to make things flatter and flatter and again working on that that level of abstraction uh, in a way that, you know... There's a lot in Patience where it's so fully in that mode that I was just like, ah, this this looks terrible. His, you know, the only thing with Klaus that has any sort of pop to it is his misanthropy. So the the two characters united in their hatred of the world, which is, you know, a pretty standard Klaus trope because it allows him to figure out how to take his endless talent for producing bile 
into a way that can still somehow service a narrative, I was like, this isn't working. It feels tired and old. But what's fascinating is Patience takes a real swerve around page 13 and then begins to swerve again and again and again. It is, I think a lot of people may know this, but if not, it's, it's not, hopefully it's not really a spoiler to say it's a story about time travel in which after uh, an incident, one of the characters in the relationship is uh, has to make do without the other and is obsessed with the idea of changing the situation that happened and gets access to a time machine uh, and begins the process of going back into the history and changing things. This, I know also, Graham, is not going to sound like your cup of tea because you're sort of like, uh, you know, it's like I know you, you're like, there's Klaus and I don't like him and there's time travel stuff and I'm not really down with it. This sounds pretty generic. And Jeff, it's like you don't know me at all. Yeah, right. Exactly. I know, right? I like I'm just time like, travel shit. You like you you words. like time travel stuff if there's like you know a jolly guy <laughs> in a fucking Actually, phone booth. Do, do you know what I was honestly thinking? What? I was like, huh? It's uh, Brian Lee O'Malley seconds. Yeah, actually, that's actually a really that's a that's an amusing comparison, right? Brian Lee O'Malley. That's, that's also about a person who. Yes. Gets the ability to change their past. Yes. And uh, abuses it, shall we say. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So... How does it compare? Because you've read Second, right? Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. Re- I, I, yes, of course I've read it. No, uh, I did. It was just whether... I didn't like it as much as a lot of other people seem to like it. And I'm not really sure... Like, when I say that, I don't know how many people actually also liked it. You know, I know... I'll put that out there. And I feel like I feel like more other people did. And and I I don't know, it's that weird like eh, I should go back and revisit it. It's it but anyway, patience, time travel stuff, Graham okay who loves tra- time travel and loves Dan Klaus. This should be a really interesting book for you because <laughs> there's because what happens is the character so you get a character who travels back in time. But the great thing is, is because Klaus's original, like, ongoing thematic concern is hmm, nostalgia and how it relates to misanthropy. I was probably saying misogyny earlier, and I think I meant misanthropy. So that would be really amusing. The the couple against the world, the endless bile that Klaus has, he's always clever enough to actually contrast that bile and the underlying nostalgic longing underneath it Klaus is aware that that too is a layer that is covering some bit of psychological damage and what is fascinating in patience is how he takes what are his his has always been his thematic concerns and ends up tying them into a much stronger narrative driven narrative than you would ordinarily get. I mean, don't get me wrong stuff like, uh, you know, stuff like the death race or, or David boring. 
there's a narrative drive that is more literary than genre is I guess what I'm trying to say. So seeing something that has a very genre drive, one character being like, I have to change everything because my world was destroyed. This sort of stuff that you can easily see coming out of the mouth of someone in a Jeff Loeb comic, you know, becoming something that in Klaus's hands, a ends up being, uh, an, Ability for him to drive the narrative in a way that his his works generally haven't, and and B and this is the part that I think is really interesting. His ability to layer the events because you don't really know the characters per se in the beginning, and the attempts to sort of introduce you to the characters and make you care about them seems so sort of like forced. And it's like, ah, this really isn't Klaus's forte, which is true. What's great about the time travel story is that it allows him to layer emotional investment into the characters so that as you return to them, uh, suddenly you have a much stronger emotional connection. It's a very weird way. It's basically Klaus figuring out how to be true to himself and yet try and get to uh, deeper emotional resonances and, and, and in, in a more touchy feely Kumbaya way that I think would be more in line with what you like, Graham, uh, because, because I can't help but feel this like there, there's a consistent number of insults laced. I know it. Does, it sounds really <laughs> shitty. No, 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 no. And I don't mean it that way. It's it sounds totally snarky. Sure, but... in, in the positive. Well, uh, well, exactly. No, no, no. I, I, it, it is this unfortunate shorthand. But I think there is a way in which I think I think the extent to which my tendency tends to run towards the depressive and your tendency tends to run towards the optimistic is, uh, for whatever reason, I want to believe that I'm like you, but not, you know, that the reason why I can never buy into the stuff that you buy into is I feel that it's never quote unquote earned, you know, which I think is a depressive's way of, you know, sort of, allowing themselves to tunnel away from the world is, is that something wasn't earned enough or justified enough or didn't feel real enough or blah, blah, blah. So it, it sounds, it sounds very disparaging, but just inherently what I mean is, is I just feel like if you sat, sat us down with a Rorschach test, I feel like you're probably going to respond more positive to, to, to the things that seem sure, more I'll happy or not. And you see a blood splatter. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Thank you. I wouldn't, yeah, let's go with that. So again, so I guess what I'm trying to say is is that, uh, you know, for example, the end of Wilson, I think, has Klaus going for something that is, you know, to me, I don't know. Some, sometimes Klaus and particularly where they remind me of like dudes like uh, Tolstoy, I guess, where it's kind of like – Life is hard and bitter, but then you have these moments and those moments make everything all worth it. But if you're 
you know, if you're not going to be as reach across the table and grab you by the lapels and shout that at you as Tolstoy is, the work is more subdued and runs the risk of being ironic or misinterpreted, which is fine, I think. I mean, it's a risk. But I feel that, for example, the stuff that's happening, say, at the end of Wilson, which can be interpreted in many ways, is either, you know, a character perhaps finding peace or realizing that their life is empty or realizing that life is ridiculously empty and, you know, <laughs> big surprise because it's a Dan Klaus book and that's exactly what you expect Klaus to, to be telling you. In Patience, he actually is trying to figure out a way in which his 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 quote-unquote chili technique and his um, his misanthropic convictions can somehow be used to muster towards something that has more of a uh i'm not even sure that optimistic is the right term but i think the best way to say it is life embracing you know yes it doesn't necessarily have to be optimistic as much as it has to be non-nihilistic yeah so there there is an attempt uh, in patience where he moves toward yeah that idea that 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 life is amazing sort of and, and in ways and not just horrible somehow trying to figure out a way to get that even as life itself is horrible and on top of which Klaus because he's a formalist the pieces of his time travel jigsaw puzzle snap together in a way that's pretty appealing and it helps that Klaus being Klaus it's done in a way that's very uh, it's 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 not flashy you know, the way that a lot of time travel people are always like, hey, look, it turns out that his brother was the magician I showed you about in the opening. The prestige. You know, you don't really get that <laughs> kind of. It's, it's true with a lot of time travel stories. And I kind of I'm fascinated by the fact that you think I don't like time travel stories because I genuinely do love them as much. As See, you I, I was just like, I just figured you liked them if they were Doctor Who. I didn't realize. No, I, I just, I just genuinely stories. like time travel stories. But if they're done well, mm-hmm. and it's really easy to do time travel stories badly where you do get, you know, see the Janet parts. Then he became the president. Right, exactly. And you're like, oh, shit. But I, I think I've said this before. One of my favorite time travel things is Bill and Ted's uh, Excellent Adventure. Mm-hmm. Which you know, is has the, the great scene where they're, I think they're trying to get out of jail. Or they're, at one point, they think, oh, shit. If only we had done this earlier. Wait, we have a time machine and it happens. <laughs> And I remember watching that as a teenager being like, have you ever seen Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Jeff? I have. I have seen it. <laughs> it's yes. just a laugh. I was like, you have seen this film. I, I, I have. I just forgot that, that part. as a teenager actually. and being like, oh, shit. Yeah, that's actually what you can do when you have a time machine. Right. Right. Because they're like, you know, oh, if if only we had a time machine, we could leave the key up here. There's the key. Yeah. yeah. You know, things like that. I, I remember being like, oh, that's actually really smart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, it's smart to, and this is what, uh, as much as you make fun of me for Doctor Who, what I like about the best of Stephen Moffat's writing on Doctor Who, which is, oh yeah, you can, you can just build that into the plot. Mm-hmm. Like, when you and the audience are both on the same page of, when you have a time machine, you don't have to have coincidence, because you can just say, after the story is done, someone can go back in time and set things up this way. 
it is is something I appreciate a lot. Uh, your your discussion on patience has actually made me super curious about it. I have to admit. Good, good. And, uh, and I I wasn't previously. I have to tell you something. I have in my to read pile that I got in the mail this week. Um, that I desperately tried to read for the podcast and did not have a chance. Mary wept over the feet of Jesus. Prostitution and religious obedience in the Bible by Chester Brown. Ooh, holy shit! Holy crap! It's, it's the second part of his. Uh, sex work series mm-hmm. because it's chester brown it does contain 70 pages of notes at the end wow uh with uh four pages uh, of bibliography wow four pages of acknowledgement and an afterward that is wow is long and afterward that is 14 pages <laughs> yeah so i'm i'm super curious about it and it, it's coming out from i think strong yeah strong and quarterly yeah and they are clearly excited about this book. Not only did they get the book in the mail on Tuesday, maybe? Mm-hmm. Maybe Monday? Um, I then got an email, like, two days later, basically being like, did you get the book? <laughs> you read it yet? <laughs> I wanted to be like, I did get the book. If you think I'm going to drop everything I have to do to get paid to read Chester Brown writing about prostitutes in the Bible. <laughs> maybe not. Huh. But um, I, I'm super, like, I, I am both super curious about it and also do not want to read it. <laughs> you know, I got to say, I, it, right? what's that? You read Paying For It. Oh, yeah. I, you must have forgotten. We did that whole uh, Savage Critics Roundtable. Oh, you did the Roundtable, yeah. Yeah, that's right, where it was like me and, you know. And pay and. Yeah, me totally punching above my weight. It was like me, Tucker, Jog, Abhe, Hibbs was in there. I mean, I, I think it was every. I want to say Chris Eckert was in there. I, it's unfortunately we're doing that at the same time as, as Abhe was trying to uh, spearhead the Roundtable on Flashpoint and fear itself so it all kind of blurs together i'm like what's <laughs> that one books. where like the red skull comes back and chester brown has sex with her and falls in love with her but she's still sleeping with other people for money that's fear itself right you know like it's just all totally no, no, that, that is flashpoint <laughs> <laughs> i knew it see i just can't keep it all to tell it all apart so because uh, because paying for itself was, was a very frustrating book for me mm-hmm. for the wrong reasons in that paying for itself uh, paying for it rather paying for itself paying for itself <laughs> paying for it uh, just made me angry at chester brown the character mm-hmm. did you have that experience that i was just like you're a terrible human being well okay so my my experience and and again to to paraphrase my uh to paraphrase yourself. To paraphrase myself, yeah. Paraphrase my earlier comments is one of the things that is absolutely ridiculous about paying for it is that by Brown's very scrupulous accounting of himself and his unwillingness to show himself um, – I mean he's really trying for almost a documentary style. He's certainly trying to strip out any sort of sentiment for from himself. The presentation of the story, to me, is a compelling argument for one of the greatest problems with sex work, which is that once you bring commodification into the realm of an intimate act, it changes 
the the basis on which that intimate act is founded, but the people involved can't really, even when it's being acknowledged, they can't necessarily acknowledge it. So for uh, the the thing with paying for it that I thought is it's amazing that someone could sit down and be like, I look forward to a future where sex work is legal and you can just buy sex from whoever you want because it's just considered as natural a transaction as asking someone the time of day is he goes from being a person that is worried about in his initial quote unquote transactions with sex workers kind of like, you know, oh, I'll do this so I won't make them uncomfortable to literally, as he's been doing it for a while, being like, oh, this person is totally not enjoying having sex with me. I'm not going to leave them a good review on my sex prostitution site or whatever the fuck it was. And I and it's this weird he turned into a consumer. It became an experience that he was purchasing for and it became entirely about what his satisfaction was in the experience. Once, you know, somebody's having sex with someone is the same as buying a burger, uh, you know, further on down the road, you no longer see the person in it. You just see the burger. You just see yes. your transaction because that's what we have money for is to be but, able to separate us from the emotional ties of our transactions. Right. You know, yes, but, but, but that, that is, that is his argument though. Yeah. I mean, that is, that is his argument. Well, his, his argument is, is that, and that's a good thing. You know, yeah, and that's the, what I mean. like his argument is this is the way it should be. Yeah, exactly. And the problem with it uh, and, and and the thing that is interesting is, is that I have to say that I myself am not anti sex work. I guess what I am is a there was part of me that's a little frustrated that, again, we get a view of sex work as seen from the view of a John you know, of someone who purchases it and his quote unquote research into the other side of what people feel is basically, you know, hanging out with his long-term sex worker and being like, Hey, are you okay with this? And she's like, sure. You know, because there's that, again, the flip side of that is, and this is the part that I do remember saying quite explicitly at the end of the round table is, is that he wants to, because human interaction for him is hard. He wants to make it transactional so it will be easier. But the problem yes, is, is, that's yeah, no, is I, that that's what that turns human transactions into. I think the, the line that I had was like that very fake dead eyed smile that you get from your, the person at the supermarket when you buy your groceries is basically the expression that, that Chester Brown wants everyone to have. That's a good thing for him. And that is, to me, at the time, I was like, particularly, I never paid much attention to it. But for me, I feel that I, I, I'm i honest. I spent a lot of time talking about how cartoonists are crackpots. Uh, and, and Brown is interesting to me because I really wonder to what extent he might end up falling somewhere on uh, an autistic spectrum and therefore his ability. Uh, his his ability to connect things is done in a very sort of super ultra rational way 
you know, without quite being able to connect to other people's feelings in a way that I would like. And, and in that situation, that's that's what's so frustrating for me about paying for it. And what I think is going to be super frustrating for me about Mary Webb is that I feel that I'm reading the work of someone for whom emotion is a problem. Like it is something to be, not just something to be avoided, but is preferably something that would not exist. See, I don't see my thing is, is, and I could be wrong is, is I think that this is, um, Brown doesn't want, um, motions to not exist. I mean, you know, that's the thing people along the autism spectrum, I, it sounds ridiculous to say this and I apologize because it's so obvious, you know, they're not robots. They have feelings. Their feelings matter a lot to them. They even want to, it's, they, they're locked out of a world that doesn't make sense to varying degrees of how far separated they are from it. One of the things for myself, I would actually very much like to read this this book you were talking about, Graham McMillan, because one of the things I find <laughs> fascinating about Brown is when he was doing Yummy Fur, his approaches to the Bible were fabulous. His retellings in the back were amazing to me because he wasn't doing them with any kind of ironic distance. Now that time has gone on and Brown is more in touch with various aspects of himself, taking someone for whom uh, um, basically the closer that you can get him to a big emotional conduit like the Bible and have him look at it, the more fascinating the results are going to be because he's not coming at it with the dissonance of, oh, this is, you know, I have a lot of feelings on this subject. Who knows? Maybe he will have a lot of feelings. But if nothing else, at least when he was visiting the Bible stuff in Yummy Fur, one of the things that was amazing to find out about Brown was is that he'd been raised uh, religious but didn't have any religious convictions himself after a while. Because the stories themselves felt very heartfelt. And what was fascinating was him basically saying – not heartfelt. I should say they were full of conviction. And he was like, I wanted to see what it would be like to tell those stories with that degree of conviction in a way sort of like because I'd never seen that before. You know what I mean? So what I think is fascinating, what I hope in in a best case scenario is you get an attempt for him to talk about – maybe maybe there i'm assuming one subject sex work that he still feels passionately about and a subject the bible that he was raised that he knows how passionate people can feel about and be able to pull apart the threads that reinforce the tool i suppose i mean uh, it could also be just a crazy bullshit polemic um and that would necessarily I, I... Su- Right. Everyone's like, Jeff, no, no. the smart money is on. No, no yeah. I think it's going to be somewhere between the two, mm-hmm. to be honest. From leafing through it, I think it's going to be somewhere between the two. And I'm I'm very curious about it. Mm-hmm. I'm also very nervous about it. Here mm-hmm. is the opening line of Craig Thompson's pull quote for, from it. Mm-hmm. Are you ready? Yes. The Bible is Chester Brown's holy harlot. He plumps the mystery of her depths while she schools him in the ways of love. <laughs> That's very funny. Next time we do a podcast, I will have read it and I will tell you all about it. 
Also, next time we do a podcast, it, I think it might be out. Great. Maybe I, maybe I will have also have read it. So, uh, Graham, as as we circle in, I have to mention the the third of the three sort of jumbo things that I read, and then I can sort of blather about Steve Gerber or whatever. But I should mention, because it's been too long in coming, uh, Jarrett Kobeck, who you may remember, uh, Graham, is a fr- friend of the podcast. Friend of the podcast. And I know exactly what you're going to say, and I have not read it. And I... Ah. I... I feel very bad about that. Well, dude, I, I sent it to you like just like three days ago. Yeah, I know. Also, you sent it to me as Jarrett, and I honestly was like, "Oh, but yeah, this this." Was well, what we you know what? Before. Let's boot it for one more session. Then, well, let's have okay, you read it because I, I play it. Wait, we should actually explain what this is because yes. right now, like, I interrupted. Uh, Jared Kobeck is a friend of the podcast, and he did a thing called Jeff. He did a thing called I Hate the Internet, which he is a useful novel against men, money, and the filth of Instagram. Uh, and it, it it's a book where – it's a book that comes with a trigger warning, basically, on the, on the front section. Uh, and one of the things mentioned – I won't spoil the trigger warning, but one of the things that he is warning us will happen in the book is mansplaining. And – it very much is. Jarrett has constructed a uh, really enjoyable polemic that it, it, it's almost – he will hate this, but of course he's going to hate everything I say about the book. So that, that'll be – we'll have to revisit it when Graham's read it so that Graham can say things that Jarrett will love. Uh, but it's be, almost like an update of Kurt Vonnegut's Breakfast of Champions. It's written in a very clean, short declarative sentences with a lot of explanations, almost a kind of in his attempt to explain why he hates the internet, why we should hate the internet and also what the internet has done to sort of um, uh, destroy culture. And specifically, as we see in the book in great detail, destroy San Francisco. uh, He writes it in a way that I find incredibly uh, Charming. It almost becomes the book itself. One of the achievements is it almost becomes a replacement for the internet. You know, it has its own <laughs> version of Wikipedia articles. It has its own version. I mean, they don't. It's not. It's not published as a Wikipedia excerpt, mind you. But I mean, he tells you about, say, I think it's called Operation Mockingbird. I think with the 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 attempts by the CIA in the Cold War to uh, create the modern American novel and modern the, the modernist styles of painting that we know and love essentially as a way to uh, look more culturally sophisticated than what the Soviet Union and uh, was was putting forth at the time. Great little section on that little bit on packet switching. Like, did you ever want to know about how valuation works? He'll tell you in very simple things. He'll also turn around and tell you what the definition of, like, say, a dollar is, which to crib from the very recent New York Times book review, uh, they, they also mentioned as, as a quote, which was a unit by which people measure how much they're willing to humiliate themselves. So he has a very <laughs> – the opening, like I, I made it literally like two pages into it when you sent it to me, and mm-hmm. then was like, I have to put this aside because otherwise I'm not going to get anything else done. But I honestly feel like even just like the first, like paragraph, mm-hmm. is is the ultimate way of you read it and you go, oh, I want to read this, yeah, or I, I'm sure people are would have the opposite. But do, do you know what I mean? Like the the start of chapter one, 
Yes. I'm tempted just to read out and then people will be like, oh, yeah. I get it. Do it. We'll go uh, with the book club. Okay, so it starts, uh, long after she committed the only unforgivable sin of the 21st century, someone on the internet sent Adeline a message. The message read, dear slut, I hope that you are gang raped by syphilis infected illegal aliens. The internet was a wonderful invention. It was a computer network, which people used to remind other people that they were awful pieces of shit. And that, honestly, you're like, I'm, or at least for me, I'm in. Yeah, like, I'm I, in. I understand what this is. Yeah, exactly. It's very upfront about that. And it goes, and it goes on to talk about the remarkable ways in which uh, the internet reinforces people's worst uh, impulses, but also the way in which it goes on to um, people use it as use the internet as a form of protest, as a way of expressing outrage in a way that only makes rich people richer. And Jarrett goes on to talk about that uh, in detail. It's got everything that a good wait, what podcast listener who's made it this far should technically love. It's got <laughs> exactly. Do you like when Jeff and I talk about things that aren't comics? You should probably read this book. Yeah. Cause it's, there's polemics, there's screeds. There's a huge shout out to Jack Kirby, who is, who is cited as the hero of the book, even though he never appears, uh, Graham and I both get name dropped. The other thing, just like oh, the internet, shit, we don't do it. Oh wait, I know this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so I'm, funny you forgot. I, I literally just remembered. Oh yes, I shouldn't have said it because then when you're reading the book, you would have been like, "What? Holy shit!" Uh, you know, there's real people running around in it, just like there's real people running around in the inner. When you're used to going on internet and people's names are being dropped, or you're on Instagram looking at photos of people you don't really know dining out in a restaurant, like. That that happens in this book. Like it's pretty got. It, I love the idea to which it is a mini replacement for the internet, because Jarrett is making an argument, a very good cogent one, I think, for the necessity of literature. He's like, look, okay. literature can do all this stuff. It can do it better. Trust me. Read this. You know, Jeff. The next podcast we're doing is in two weeks, right? Yes. Right. By then, I will have read the book, and we will dedicate as much time as we have to about this book. Okay. Okay. I I was worried about that because, as people will be aware, now we do pop up in the book, so it's it's a it's a little uh I was I my fear of grandiosity or egotism was such that it made it very difficult to actually bring up the book, but. God bless him. I, I do appreciate the book that, that, that Jared has written. I'm sort of chuckling because uh, he and I have exchanged emails about it and is now happily telling people at readings that I hate his book, even though I'm a character <laughs> in it. So. Okay, so next episode, you've got to hate the book. Okay. Yeah, right. I, any, anyone who actually just like Google searches the book and wait what comes up. Yeah. And, and they listen to the episode, they can just believe that you hate the book. Yeah, there we go. It's this like the back the scenes. My, my pull quote, Jeff Lester, I hate, I hate the internet, which I just, you know, the repetition is wonderful. So, yeah, people, if you have a chance, go grab a copy and then come back and listen to us discuss it. It is uh, – Fifteen ninety five American dollars. It literally says on the back price fifteen ninety five American dollars. Uh, and is it is characterized his uh, I think the ISBN ISBN B. Why can't I say that ISBN? ISBN. Come on, you can do fake it. Fake K 
categories are fiction slash internet slash San Francisco slash a thousand tears. It's sold by <laughs> We Heard You Like Books. Uh, you can find it on Amazon. You should be able to find it all over the place. Jarrett's really good about it. I was very heartened to go into a bookstore the other night and see it prominently featured up front with, you know, ecstatic scrawls from the uh, bookstore employee who works there uh, being like. Although I, I will also say that Jeff, don't forget, lives in San Francisco. Yes, so absolutely. It's possible that your local bookstore won't have it because local bookstores do not always have the books that you're looking for. So do not, even though it is a book about hating the internet, do not feel ashamed of using the internet to get this book. That is true. That is true. Absolutely. So we'll we'll talk about that next time. Uh, but I did want to say this one summer, yes, fabulous. Klaus Patience, it, surprisingly amazing. I, I'm glad you had such positive experiences with with both those books. I'm really glad you loved this one summer so much because I, right. that is just such a good comic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is. It is really good, and it's one of those things that you put down and you kind of do want to. I don't know. Did you turn to Kate and be like, "Hey, you should read this"? Because I actually did that to Edie as soon as I was done. I think so. I can't remember. It wouldn't surprise me because it really you finish up the book and it's just such a. Um, you know, it's a, it's kind of a well-told, well-grounded story, but I think there was also just something about it that, weirdly enough, maybe this is just me being sexist, but I was like, oh, my wife will really enjoy reading about this because even though she didn't go anywhere for her fucking Because it's about girls. Because it's about girls. Exactly. Exactly. So maybe maybe Jeff. the secret is is that I'm just a big douche, which is Jeff, that, that That's the secret, secret, Jeff. That is the secret. secret. Yeah, I know. I know. (laughs) Everyone's like, secrets? It's like those movies where it's like you knew who the murderer was in the first five seconds. They're like, I knew Jeff was a douche right from the get-go. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, talking about murders. Yes. uh, I read the first issue of, uh, I want to say it's actually called Department H or Depth. Oh. Because it's D-E-P-T dot H. The new Matt Kent book that's coming out from Dark Horse soon. Uh, Ah, mm-hmm. And it's a murder mystery. Did you know that? Mm-mm. It's a it's a murder mystery that takes place in an undersea base. Wow. And it is Kent's a fascinating creator. On his on his mainstream arc, like I think he I honestly think he crashed and burned to DC. But I think his Valiant stuff is great. Mm-hmm. I think Ninjack's really good, I think Unity's good. And he's over isn't he over and on an X Men title right now? Not that I'm following it. No, you're thinking of Jeff Lemire. Oh, sorry. I do get those Jeff guys Myers confused. That's embarrassing. X-Men, he says. Yeah. Um, but like, but on his personal stuff, like you know, mind management or super mm-hmm. spy or, or, you know, I, there's another one, Undersea Welder. Um, or was that Lamar? Am I mixing them up now? You might be. It, it, oh, pistol shit. whip isn't pistol uh, anyway, whip uh, Kent? Uh, or no, that's Lamar yeah. again too. No, pistol whip Kent, I think. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, but on on definitely on mind management. Uh. He takes genre tropes and mm-hmm. you somehow finds personal spaces inside them. Yes. And that's definitely the case mm-hmm. with with either Depth or Department H, which more than anything felt like someone had climbed inside a James Cameron movie, mm-hmm. created a murder mystery in there, and created a, like an indie film inside the murder mystery inside the James Cameron movie. Wow. I really, really liked it. I, I was I was kind of surprised because like I like mind management, but I didn't love mind management. Mm-hmm. Is he is uh, he drawing depth as well or? Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. Interesting. Um, and it's 
I don't know if he's doing the colors or if I think it's his wife is also working with him on it. Mm-hmm. But whoever is doing the colors, it's wonderful work because it's watercolor. Mm. But it's also wonderfully color coded. Mm-hmm. So the present day is in full color, but you then enter, head into a lengthy flashback sequence. Mm-hmm. And inside the flashback sequence, you have another flashback sequence. Mm. And the first flashback is all tones of blue. Mm-hmm. And the second flashback sequence inside the first one is all gold. Mm. And it's the second one happens between panels of the flashback sequence. Mm-hmm. And it's this wonderful thing where like the color coding makes it clear mm-hmm. where you are in each point, but also makes it into a design element. I don't know. I can, I'm not explaining it very well, but it's, it's visually, it's a very, very good book. Hmm. Um, but I, I really enjoyed it. Just when, just when you were talking about genre, I was like, Oh yes. That's great. You know, I, I have to say this is the, we should have a regrets episode. Cause I really feel like uh, not only do I, not only do I have a ton of them generally, but I feel like there are guys, uh, Kent, Lemire and Ray Fox to an extent, all guys who kind of had real strong indie work. I still have one soul sitting on my bookshelf by, uh, Fox. Have you read I, it? I, I have not. Like I sat down, started to hit it, and then I was like, put it down. And it's a shame because all these guys are pretty much the definition of what should be my jam. These are guys who are very formalist thinking, who are all like taking genre stuff and playing with it. And like you said, perfect description, finding personal spaces within the work. Uh, and, And so I should totally be down with it and god knows there have been enough whatnots who have been like oh you should check this out you should check that out and every time i go to the work it just never click and again i'm in the same way that i sort of you know roll my eyes when i've got friends who complain that nobody draws like neil adams anymore you know uh is (laughs) which now means something completely different thanks to the superman series but we all know what he meant you know George Perez, but put did, in did, your. Did you read? Did you read the second issue of Superman? I I went to go get the first issue at the comic book store, Comics Experience, and and I think they were sold out. So I was by the, like, by the second issue, they've seen the light because they're like, let's get rid of Tony Bedard, like make this a one hundred percent Neil Adams joint. Absolutely, absolutely. Which which is smart, like because people people were like, because <laughs> so, honestly, it might have become significantly less readable. I, what do you mean by readable, my friend? Anyway, my point being, uh, we should return to this, is it – I do it, – it bums me out that there's a number of people whose work I've just never been able to quite click with in part because I'm like – I refuse to jump in and read some of their more mainstream work and I'm like, no, I got to read their indie stuff. And then I look at well, it and I'm like – To be oh, fair, they, I think oh. if you did that with Mike Ken, it's very possible you'd be thrown away because mm-hmm. Kent's DC work really genuinely just didn't come together. Right. No, I, uh, and I, I know he was at Marvel for a while as well, and I, I don't know how that went, but yeah. but definitely he's like he had a he did the um, Forever Evil issues of Justice League of America, and they were they were not good, right? And and I think you can't judge him for that. No, it, I mean that's the amazing the Forever thing, Evil yeah. issues of Justice League of America. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they 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 were seriously flawed. But you have um, Department H, which. Because I, I, my intro to Kent was the DC work, mm. you know, and so going to my management, I was like, oh, this, this is the same guy. 
Right. See, so I was, I was reading a... Mind Management for the first seven or eight issues, I want to say, and really quite dug it. I dug the whole package and everything he was doing. But at a certain point, there there was just something, and God help me, it's the least generous thing in the world to say. But at a certain point, there was a. I was kind of like, I'm not sure the other tropes, it, like all of the little pieces that he has are going to come together. And I feel like I'm reading a book that was drawn in like a dude's, you know... It, his his drawing style is crude. I appreciate the fact that he is not going to let that get in the way, and he's going to draw his own stuff. You know what I mean? And it's but I'm just every time I sit down, I'm like, it, it's, ah, it looks like a yeah, high school sketchbook. It's crude, but it's not. Uh, it's not ill thought out. Like it's smartly crude. He's, he's doing things that are very intelligent. It's deliberately crude. I guess. No, no, no. Exactly. Well, or, you know, it's, I think it's not he's like leveraging I, I, his I, weaknesses I, and his I, strengths. I, which, yeah, but I don't get the idea that you know he's he's drawing in his style and being like, I wish I drew like George Perez. Mm, Do you know what I mean? Like, no. saying it's you feel like it's looking like it in someone's sketchbook. Yes, feels to me like you know it, it conjures up the. If they keep working at it, one day they're going to look like Perez's Teen Titans, and and I don't think, I don't think that's an aim. I think he draws, I think he draws like he draws, which is the most meaningless sentence in the world. Yes. But I think that he has. You don't need to agree with me that eagerly. <laughs> no, uh, I think no, because but I, I, do I think, think it's a very it deliberate choice, and I think that the style, the linemanship. Again, I think I've just invented a word. Uh, disguises an amount of thoughts that has gone into the construction of the image. Mm-hmm. I, my, pro- I, I, uh, you're probably right. This is the like, problem. I, I I'm totally not generous enough. I, yeah, I yeah, totally yeah. Get what you're saying. Yes, uh, and it's actually a problem I also have with Lemire's artwork. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, exactly. I Lemire's artwork also similarly outsidery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just. It's, I think that Lemire is closer to the "quote unquote" mainstream norm, right. which I think makes him more palatable, both in line work and construction of the page. Mm-hmm. And so I, th- I think he's he's uh, more again quotation marks attractive mm-hmm. to people. Yeah. Uh, who knows? Maybe I'm talking him about. No, no, no. I, I would say absolutely all of those things are accurate, but sort of in the same same way that it's like <laughs> the the butterfly skull dynamic between us. I just have a tendency to uh, no. It's just I just can't make I just can't make the jump. Like I'm like Kint. It's like yes, but uh, I still oh, but, but I still don't it, like it. Why? You know? There's no reason for you to make the jump. Well, no, but I, you know I, I mean? like it, you, you like what you like. You do you, Jeff. Yes, I know. I do me, but that this is the weird thing that I think becomes frustrating is as you get as I as I get older, I want to be able to stay open to experiences, at the very least, have them be open to experiences that are things that I would be receptive to if I was younger. You know what I mean? Like, the, in other words, what these guys are doing, like I said, what these guys are doing in theory is my jam. And because my jam is actually pretty predicated heavily on theory means that it should work, you know, and they're – but so yeah, I but find it's, it's myself – it's not. What, what they're doing as an intellectual exercise is your jam. But what they're doing visually is not your jam and that's fine. Yeah, I agree. It's just weird because especially I can look at something like uh, – 
One Man War on Terror, uh, whatever the fuck it was called, Beheader, Defenestrator, you know, the Benjamin Mara book. <laughs> the uh, ben Mara book, yes. Yeah, like Ben Mara's work, which I is, you know, um, it's when I bought that book at uh, Comics Experience, Doug behind the counter said, oh, this is great. Emma and I actually had a bet as to whether anyone would ever buy that book ever. And I was like, oh, uh, <laughs> you should have been like, who bet was? Well, I mean, I, that, that's what I, that's, that's what I said. Fun. Yeah. I was, I was <laughs> like, like, yeah, sorry. I don't mean to cut you off. Yeah. But, uh, oh, okay. Cause I, I was, I was like, oh, really? Who lost? And he was great. He was just like, we all did, Jeff. We all did. So, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Then, huh? Doug, Doug's, Douglas is awesome. So. Um, yeah. Wow. Okay. What is this book? Is it terror, terror assaulter? Oh man. Terror assaulter, one man war on terror or umwat, which is really funny. Cause you just know that he's making fun of, fun of OMAC and that, uh, that book is, um, you know, I look at that and of course it's crude, but be, it's super crude. And again, Mara's like, Oh, I'm working with my limitations, but in that sort of horrible, ironic way that I should absolutely sort of kind of loathe and it's interesting because Mara's gone on to inspire people like well I don't know about inspires probably a, a strong too strong a word but, no, but sort of that I, I see things like Charles Forsman's recent work I think is really like exactly. in the vein one yeah. man war you know exactly but, but Mara's especially one man war in terror feels much more sketch booky Absolutely. Than, yeah, yeah, than yeah. Kent's work. No, exactly. What that, and this is, this is what I was trying to say is, is one of the things that's frustrating to me is I can respond to Mara's work, even though, as you point out, it's, it's sketchbooky. Mara's whole, Mara actually works the ironic shtick. So it's very much this idea of like, I'm not into this, but I'm basically drawing the stuff that someone who draws like this would be into. You know what I mean? Like, like is it? He's he's willing to try and take uh, um, a more direct kind of violently confrontational approach in his work to to create some of that juice, that sort of dirty pulp thing, and consequently stuff like. The humans, uh, he's obviously an influence in because there's a character who's named after him. And again, like you said, Charles Foreman's Revenger uh, really feels like it grew out of that attempt to try and get at something in a way that's more um, visceral and direct. And in the case of Amwat and Terror Assaulter, one of the interesting choices that Mara makes is, is that he makes it uh, – much more defiantly transgressive, you know, his, his story about like a perfect killing machine character that is, you know, kind of the, the X rated version of that, you know, horrible super spy character that David Brent, David Brent, whoever, uh, the character I'm disappearing down. Like once you, once well, you can, you Brent. miss a rung of pop culture references. Who's the name of the horrible office manager in the office? David Brent. Is the Brit version. The American yes. version is. Oh, shit. Um, I can't even think of the name of the guy. Steve Carell's character. Yeah, in the I, know, office. I can't think of it at all. God damn it. Oh, uh, Michael, Michael, Brent. Michael Brent, Michael something. Anyway, it's my, Michael. Yeah. 
he's got a character. He, you know, they always have the the idea that he's writing this horrible screenplay about the thinly veiled uh, fantasy version of himself. That's basically the Ben Mara joke in um, uh, Terror Assaulter, except Terror Assaulter is also, um, you know, uh, ridiculously sexual in a way that the sex is uh, hilariously dehumanizing which is always a great phrase to say out loud. But what's also great is, is that the character is bisexual. So you get to see him have ridiculously terrible sex. sex. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And Uh, Michael Scott, by the way, I had to look up the internet because it was annoying me. Thank you, Michael Scott. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, wow. That, that really was like, I had that moment of like, oh my God, I just saw myself falling into a pop culture abyss where I couldn't really say anything. I could just, try pointing at things because the associative (laughs) train had broken entirely. So yeah, terror assaulter is one of those books where it, uh, it does so much of the stuff that, uh, these other guys I feel are doing and yet does it for, um, shittier, more ironic, exploitative means is much, you know, is trying to quote unquote provoke in its, you know, sort of sexist, racist approach, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, you know, which has gotten a lot of people stirred up. And I think, I think rightly so. I think the thing that's problematic is, is part of me is like, yeah, this work is probably not, it, you know, again, there's that weird thing of like, as you said, I like what I like. And I'm like, ah, I'm liking it. But I really, really like my copy of (laughs) One Soul. I like what I like, but do I have to? Yeah, well, no, just kind of that thing of like, uh, I'm just like I'm I'm not a good person, basically, and I'm <laughs> I'm okay with that in a way, but it it's one of those things that's very embarrassing when you're you know when you've got a podcast uh, where you're talking with a friend and people listen and you know they're, they're I guess it's like oh let's see you know listen to Jeff and Graham let's see what kind of version of an effete comic snob Jeff's going to dress up as this time. I've got 20 bucks on the beret and the little mustache. You know, it's like, I don't, I don't know. I can't tell you how much I love love that. Uh, I think that's where we should leave it for this week. Yeah, I think it is. I think it is. (laughs) I think that's where we've peaked. Um, Jeff, I have to admit, even though next week is our skip week, Mm -hmm. I almost wanted it to not be the case. Tell because yes. well, next week, Jeff, yes. is also the Superman comes out. Oh, no shit. Holy crap. And so the idea of us doing a Batman versus Superman <laughs> podcast. But I actually like, even better, waiting a week so we've both had a chance to see the film. Yeah, I think so. Uh, and then doing an I Hate the Internet slash Batman versus Superman podcast. <laughs> because the <laughs> Whiplash that will give people. It's totally will true. Be amazing. Yes. Yes. Come absolutely. for the Jared Kobeck. Stay for the Zack Snyder. Yeah, exactly. Or vice versa. Or vice whichever versa. people. <laughs> but it's basically Batman versus Superman, Jared Kobeck v uh Zack Snyder, Dawn of Just Us. And uh you know, I have to tell you before we go, this is one of the things that's really Recently, my uh, niece was over um, 
and by recently, I mean like probably last month, she is, God, she just turned six. But we were, of course, playing superheroes as uh, we have to uh, whenever she comes over. And she's got, you know, we've got the Wolverine, the Wolverine, the Wonder Woman figurine, the Superman figurine, the Captain America figurine. They're all about approximately the same size. And then a rotating cast of guest characters. The, as you may recall, uh, basically the stuffed, the stuffed, the, the, soft vinyl piggy bank that we had uh piggy was basically the best superhero of all of them like wonder woman and piggy were best friends exactly so i had to play superman and captain america and (laughs) wonder woman and piggy uh you know got to be june and june was like okay now you know let's play superheroes i'm going to go to paradise island and and we're like and i'm like uh great. We'll come with you. And she's like, no, guys can't come on Paradise Island, which is true. And I'm super proud that she's, you know, enough of, she's got enough comic book nerd mojo to know you can't let guys on Paradise Island. And and so she basically goes over to one edge of the room and is basically playing over there. And every time we come over, we, she's like, every time, no. Yes, no. And I'm like, how the <laughs> fuck am I supposed to play? You know, but of course that's the thing. When kids oh are playing, so their form of play is like, okay, now we play the part where I get to go on a picnic and you fucking have to stay home. You know, I'm like, really? Are we still playing this part? Yes, we are. And I'm like, it's kind of dull over here. She's oh like, now God, you know. So much. I so. So one of the things that's really sad because I'm an old nerd and the older I get, the more horrible puns become like charming to me. Um, I was like, I was like, well, can, you know, Superman, and, Superman and Captain America, can we, can we come over? No, you can't, you guys can't, you guys have to go away. And so I have Captain America like, okay, fine. We'll start our own Island, Paraguys Island. And... <laughs> Did June make you leave the room? Could you shoot up? You know the thing that sucked is when you make that ch- that championship level pun right there in the spontaneous moment, and a six year old doesn't even get it. Like she doesn't even <laughs> she doesn't even shoot you a stink eye. She's just like whatever. I'm like no, Paraguys Island. Get it? She's the idea that I'm it's like, like sitting paradise, there, but it's pair of guys. Pair of guys. It's. I thought of that right now, and <laughs> there is. I mean, her whole the whole the whole reason why we hang out is just because she's excited to have an adult that she can totally be indifferent to. But it's no, amazing. it's that she loves you because you're into superheroes and she's into superheroes. Well, believe me, it, there's that too. But it's a it's a multivalent thing. But believe me her ability because you know when mommy and daddy do stuff and you're indifferent to it like people get pissed off and when your grandparents are like look june look what i bought you and like kids are like i don't care like you know like whatever else is going on i just don't give a shit but with uncle jeff it's like hey look paraguys island don't even don't even care about what you're saying okay i'll leave the room wait where are you going come back you know what i mean like it's just very much that like i i I, you have an important role in my life. If you actually leave, I can't ignore you anymore, you know, be, so it's, it's great. It'll be fascinating to see what she's like as a teenager. Cause let me tell you, 
She's got such an amazing head start on that. Anyway, I know we were going to jump off and, and end, but uh, people, join no, us I, in I th- two weeks. I think that story was well worth sharing. <laughs> oh, was it? Okay. Fire Guys Island, everyone. It does <laughs> felt the name of this thing. This oh, you're right. Really of course it is. Oh, my God, you're a genius. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, uh, Graham. Uh, yeah, uh, this is where I do wrap up. And also the dogs are just barking insanely downstairs. Can you hear that? I, I heard them earlier. They sort of seem to come and go. Wax and wean, as it were. Uh, anyway, people, what I was going to say is this. Uh, we are on the internet all over the place. Show notes for this episode and other episodes and occasionally written posts can be found at waitwhatpodcast.com. Miscellanea can be found at waitwhatpods.tumblr.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are on Twitter at Wait What Podcasts. Jeff is on Twitter at Lazy Bastard at L A Z Y B A S T I D. I am on Twitter at Graham M at G R A E M E M. We are on Stitcher. We are on iTunes. We are. Are we available anywhere else? I think that's it. Right. I, in theory, anywhere that you, it says iTunes in the name of our our RSS feed, but anywhere anyone that ha- can grab an RSS feed. You can listen to our podcast. Uh, it's what else? You, oh, I know what I should say. Uh, we are a Patreon supported podcast. Uh, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash wait what podcast. And because I've just mentioned the magic word Patreon, Jeff can say. I can say. Our special thanks to the crew over at the American Ninth Art Studios for their continuing support of this podcast, as well as special thanks to Empress Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy, for her support, and our thanks to all 117 supporters on Patreon who make this all possible. And we are quite serious about that because those of us, those of you who listen to our Baxter Building podcast, uh, directly uh, have our patrons to uh, thank because we would not have done it if they didn't uh, accept our dare to make us do it. So, <laughs> Was it a dare? Was that how we're characterizing it? I, I don't know. <laughs> I, guess, I guess that's probably not the best way. I think I really think Jeff's phraseology, it's just like, yes, Jeff, Saturday morning, clearly a sociable Jeff's person. Jeff's phraseology is the uh, third album from Jeff Lester. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Uh. <laughs> what was the hell behind? What is this feeling that I'm feeling? Oh, y- yeah. Are you feeling the feeling that I'm feeling? <laughs> yeah. Oh, callback to old jokes. Wow. Well done. Okay, everyone, we will see you next time. Please come back and listen. We appreciate you joining us. And Grant. No, let's come back next time. Next time is Batman versus Superman versus I Hate the Internet. Come on! I'm saying, I'm saying join us anyway because we like it. But yes, you can't miss next episode, clearly. Actually, in between the next two episodes, there's also the reveal of all the uh, DC Rebirth creative teams. We're going to have a shitload to talk about next time. See, it's just going to be, it's going to be, ooh, action. Will we fit it all in there? It's going to be great. Probably not. But in the meantime, bye! Well done. Oh my god. Perfect. Perfect. (laughs) 